I, I use universal sort of loosely because I'm thinking of sort of like a universal experience of people who are in punk communities, a universal experience of which is, you know, not quite universal, but in these sort of these sort of subcultural spaces and activist spaces, I think a lot of people identify with um, getting into those spaces when you're young and feeling a little bit insecure, whether it's the punk scene or the activist scene and just sort of not knowing what it's all about. This is Wine, Women, and Revolution with your host, Heather Warburton. Hi, and welcome to Wine, Women, and Revolution. I'm your host, Heather Warburton. Today, I've been so excited about this interview ever since I booked it. My guest today is a really awesome woman who wrote a really awesome book. And she's been a writer. She's an educator. She's been featured in Teen Vogue, Rolling Stone, NPR. And her new book is called Rust Belt Femme. Welcome to the show, Rachel Ann Jolie. Thank you so much for having me. So um, your book, I loved your book. It kind of really drew me in. You know, it's two of... One of my main focuses of activism is talking about working class and the working poor. And obviously LGBTQ rights is something I've been fighting for a long time. So your book really just reached out like, you've got to read this book. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad. But I wanted to start off first by talking about Teen Vogue. Because Teen Vogue, back when I was reading Teen Vogue, was, you know, if you don't buy this lip gloss, everyone's going to hate you. <laughs> and now it's very <laughs> workers of the world unite. So... Yeah. Do you think that was just reflecting of the times changing or was Teen Vogue really making an effort to step up their game quite a bit? Yeah. Um, so so I've, I've I've only have one article in Teen Vogue, so I'm not you know, I, I don't <laughs> try to speak as, you know, staff for them right, or anything. Right. But um, I do, you know, know a number of people who who are on staff and who write for them quite a bit. And, um, you know, I think that they were sort of part of this moment when media was realizing that they had to sort of catch up to, yeah, a really, really big cultural shift that I think is uh, really exciting to see, you know, so I'm, I'm part of a sort of, I call myself an elder millennial. So I'm sort of older millennial generation. I, I sort of identified with Gen X as a, as a kid, even though I wasn't technically Gen X, but Gen, you know, but I'm really excited to see what um, younger millennials and Gen Z, uh, you know, sort of have, have grown up kind of articulating um, a, a baseline that is so much more radical than the sort of baseline was, I think, when a lot of us who are older um, were growing up. So I think Teen Vogue is certainly reflecting that. Um, I think media knows that it has to reflect that in order to be relevant to young people, you know, large portions of young people. Um, and at the same time, you know, I have friends who work there who are really radical, but also know that it's Teen Vogue is still a corporation owned by Condé Nast. And, you know, there's sort of only so much you can do um, in corporate media, uh, which is why, you know, DIY media is still so important. Right. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I'm certainly not too radical to dismiss corporate media if it's giving, you know, putting out great articles about Karl Marx and why we should defend Antifa. Right. That's so funny that you say you're one of the uh, older millennials who um, identified as a Gen Xer, because I'm one of the youngest Gen Xers, and I'm always more <laughs> identified with millennials. So it's one of you're never quite happy with what generation you're born right. into. <laughs> All right. So I wanted to dig into your book a lot. Like I said, I really enjoyed your book. Um, what sparked you to write a memoir? I always felt 
I, I personally am a fan of memoir. It's, you know, one of my favorite genres to read. Um, particularly, I think, after uh, going through many, many years of academia, um, I went, you know, I was in grad school, I got a PhD, so I spent a lot of my adult life in academia reading nonfiction. And I really do love academic theory and political theory. Um, but it, it was getting harder and harder to read fiction, I found. And memoir felt like this, like, great sort of middle point between it wasn't so academic that I had to be sort of constantly thinking, but um, it also felt true when that, and I just was drawn to sort of nonfiction stories. So I love memoir as a, as a reader. Um, and similarly, to link it to academia, uh, I sort of am, consider myself a little bit of an ex-academic. Um, I, like many people who went to graduate school, didn't end up getting secure employment. Um, there's not a lot of secure employment for academics these days. Uh, and so as I was sort of climbing my way out of that very repressive world, um, I, I wanted to stop only writing academic work because a lot of academic work is hidden behind paywalls and it's inaccessible to people for a number, you know, a number of reasons in paywalls and, and sometimes sort of the jargon that we're sort of required to write in. And so as I was sort of crawling my way out of that space, I, you know, felt really pulled to tell this part of my story and, um, and so, and so that's where it sort of started. And when I found Belt Press, which is this incredible independent press that put my book out, um, they're based in Cleveland and most of what they publish is very place-based. So they're very interested in, in sort of regional work that covers the region of the Midwest and the Rust Belt. And so that helped me um, realize that, you know, what I was really being called to was telling a part of my story as it relates to my, related to my life in Cleveland. And so the book is really, um, you know, from about four years old until I left Cleveland at 18. I think I realized when I was preparing for this interview, you're actually my first autobiography I've had on here. Mm -hmm. So I was mm -hmm. I, wondering if it's weird, like when people come up to you and now they've read this book, which is a story, but it's your <laughs> life. And they come up to you like, well, I really hated your boyfriend. <laughs> like, do you get that kind of thing? And is that kind of weird? <laughs> um, I would say that it is weird that it is weird that people know very big, intimate parts of my life, certainly. Um, I feel, I mean, I knew what I was getting into. I knew that was going to happen. I think it's more strange that, um, that you know, when people don't pause and think about how I told a very specific snapshot of my life, you know, it was my life as it relates to Cleveland punk and gender. And there was, you know, so, so many aspects of my life that didn't make it into the book. So, you know, it, you know, people think, they know somebody after they read a memoir and you know there's so much more to know and then the second thing is that i find myself wishing that every new person i meet also wrote a memoir so <laughs> i can like also know more about them because it always feels a little imbalanced when i'm sort of making a new friend and and they know much more about me than they know about <laughs> them um but i yeah it's it's very vulnerable but i i knew what i was getting into well, I guess that kind of leads me into my next question is you were very relatable in this book. You know, you definitely seem like someone I would have hung out with <laughs> when I was that age, you know, like it seems like a lot of people. Did you realize how relatable your story was when you were writing it? Um, I had a feeling that, you know, certain threads would feel kind of universal to certain. I, I use universal sort of loosely because. I'm thinking of sort of like a universal experience of people who are in punk communities, a universal <laughs> experience of which is, you know, not quite universal, but in these sort of these sort of subcultural spaces and activist spaces, I think a lot of people identify with um, 
getting into those spaces when you're young and feeling a little bit insecure, whether it's the punk scene or the activist scene and just sort of not knowing what it's all about. So I, I think I knew that, that, that I wasn't alone in that. Um, but it's also been really sweet. Uh, and again, as a fan of memoir, I, I also sort of knew this would happen because it's happened to me as a reader. Um, there's these themes that, that feel sort of very specific. Like my, I write about my father who was in a car accident and, and severely brain damaged. And that's a very unique and specific thing that not a lot of people have experienced, but there are a lot of people who, who um, as, as, as people have reached out to me who've read the book, who say, you know, I have a, a complicated relationship with a parent that feels really incomplete. And like, there's never gonna be like actual closure because of X, Y, and Z. And so even just um, that broader theme of a complicated relationship with a parent, whether it's because of a very specific brain injury um, or not, uh, you know, I, I knew those things also have spoken to people, which I'm grateful for. Yeah, it, it really was. Uh, there, even though I didn't, you know, your, our lives were very different, but it still was like, okay, yeah, I know this person. Like, this is someone <laughs> I've known in my life. Like, so, you know, it's sort of, you know, it did, it was like you were talking about earlier, you kind of feel like, oh, well, this is a friend now. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I did want to get into, I guess, some of the more like, deeper parts of the book is you definitely talk about finding sort of the femme aesthetic and how that, you know, how you got into that. Do you want to elaborate a little bit and tell my readers or my listeners a little bit about how your journey to there was? Yeah. Um, so I didn't know the term femme when I was growing up. Uh, you know, it, and I think it's the internet was not the thing that it is now. And I'm sure that i would have been a Tumblr kid if Tumblr, Tumblr was around when, when I was um, younger. But so I didn't know this term then, but I did feel myself exploring gender as we all do. You know, a, an important part of that I wanted to bring out in the book is that you don't have to be trans or non-binary to have to figure out and perform your gender. Like literally all of us perform our gender and have to figure out how to navigate our gender. And so as I was on that journey, um, you know, it felt very, uh, as I think it does for a lot of young women, you you have to be really intentional about, and I would say that for, for any gender, but you do have to be very intentional about how you're going to show up as a woman at school, you know, and as you start to decide that you're feeling attraction to, you know, whatever other gender, you know, how you want to sort of perform that desirability, all of these things that, that humans have to navigate. Um, and so as I was trying to explore that, I nothing felt comfortable, which again is a very common adolescent experience, teenage experience, not feeling comfortable in your skin is a pretty universal experience. But I did feel myself, despite not feeling like I was fitting into these sort of normative traditions of um, like hot women, the hot popular girls at school, I was not fitting into that. But I was still feeling very drawn to femininity. And so Thankfully, I had the punk scene, which was, you know, already sort of being infiltrated by riot girl culture. And again, I didn't necessarily have the language for that right away either. But I saw Kathleen Hanna and I saw Beth Ditto and I was like, oh, my gosh, like dyed black hair, short bangs, tattoos, like this is amazing. And it was very feminine, but it was also very countercultural, which I was also feeling really drawn to. And then I also um, so I was feeling pulled to that. And I was also sort of realizing that that sort of hyper femininity felt very similar to um, how my grandmother performed femininity. So I write a lot about her and she was a very theatrical sort of costumey woman. 
And then I also sort of noticed this um, third sort of lens to my gender, which was that I was um, feeling very influenced by uh, the quote unquote trashy white trash women that I that I grew up with in my early life, um, which and I, and I at length in the book talk about these sort of markers of class and in particular um, women who are you know sort of seen as like working class trashy women. There's this sort of like sexuality that's hypersexuality that's projected onto them, and I think that queer femme culture. Um, often is about sort of reclaiming some of that, uh, that hyper-femininity and that trashiness. Yeah, it's a really interesting, like, I, you know, I, one of the things I talk about a lot is gender, but being someone, you know, I was assigned female at birth and I do identify as female. And it's almost like sometimes I have to overperform femininity when I'm in a business setting. So I mm -hmm. loved your like, okay, I'm taking that and claiming it as my own, not like some annoyance that you have to put up with to be taken right. seriously. Um, but it's really something that you owned. And I loved that about it. I thought it was a great yeah. journey there. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it took a long time to get there. But yeah. <laughs> by the time I wrote the book at 35, I got there. <laughs> well, I guess I wanted to ask one of the questions was, who do you who was your goal audience when you were writing this book? Who were you writing it for? That's a great question. And I think it sort of shifted a little bit. Um, you know, I certainly knew that there's this sort of amazing group of femme women, femme people, um, not just women, uh, around my age who, you know, I've now sort of found in internet spaces and also in real life queer spaces, um, who also have this sort of intersection of punk and class. And so I certainly knew that it would speak to, to that subset of sort of femme culture. Um, I also, you know, am really, especially after writing the book, I, I'd always, I've, I've always had a love for Cleveland, even after I haven't lived there since I was 18, for, you know, long term. Um, but I, I also knew that it would, whenever you read a book that is from where you grew up and you like see references made to places you've been, I think that's really cool. So I, I, I hoped and I, and I sort of suspected that um, Clevelanders of a variety of ages and identities would also be excited about it. And that's also been true, sort of like, you know, random 53 year old cis straight white dudes are like, it was really fun to read about that movie theater that you went to because I went there too. And it's like, great, glad you found something to identify with. Um, so Clevelanders, queer femmes, um, and, you know, again, those, those sort of very specific, unique things about my life, if, if it can reach a person who has a parent with a, you know, a severe brain injury, that's amazing if, because I, you know, that's a, it's a very, it's very isolating when you feel like you're the only one with a very specific experience. So, you know, if it, if it also is sort of reaching people who have disabled parents or who grew up particularly also, um, something I've also started to sort of identify as later in life as a class straddler. Mm -hmm. So other people who grew up, uh, you know, poor and have found their way into some semblance of, even if it's not their bank account that, that shows their class dynamic, which has certainly been the case for me, especially as a grad student. I was still poor as a grad student, but I suddenly had access to middle class spaces and middle class culture and middle class, upper, often upper middle class culture and, and spaces. Um, and so also that's, that's a very, uh, isolating experience. So I was hoping, you know, that people who identified with that would also relate to it as well. 
Yeah, what I noticed that you did in the book quite often was explaining things that, you know, oh, just from being in a similar, the activist culture, you talk about Food Not Bombs, for example, and then mm-hmm. you take time to explain, okay, this is who Food Not Bombs is. And I like, I was reading, and I was like, oh, I really took note of that, because like, you know, I could have easily just passed it on and kept reading, because, you know, I know mm-hmm. who Food Not Bombs was, I work with Food right. Not Bombs, but, right. you know, I really appreciate it. Like, okay, so she's definitely trying to open this up to as large of an audience as possible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's also, that's like the sort of, that's the academic in me as well. You know, it felt, I feel very, as much as I have criticisms of the ivory tower and the institution of academia, uh, you know, I've been teaching for like over 10 years and I really believe in the value of education and sharing knowledge as a way to share power. When you have, when you have more information, you just have no more ability to engage in conversations and think differently about ideas. So it's also been um, exciting for people to to learn about these sort of radical politics in a much less threatening way, I think, because a lot of people refer to Food Nut Bombs as sort of gateway activism. That it's like, here's this easy thing where you can just like feed people. Everybody wants to feed right. people, right? Um, and then and then you get, you know, you, you show up there and you get candid socialist literature. So, or anarchist, you know, anarchist. So, um, yeah, so it felt important to me to pause and sort of break things down as well. I thought it was really interesting, too, that you kind of came to that so much earlier in your life than I did. Like, I don't think I became a, rat- a radical leftist until I was in, like, my late 30s. So seeing you mm. at, like, 15, 16, <laughs> like, wow, I wonder, like, how, where my life would have been different had I got started back then, you know, rather than playing catch up later in life. But it's a great to hear how everybody gets to the place that they're at. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I sort of feel similarly about queerness, like my even though the book is about queer gender identity, again, I didn't I didn't come out as first I I came out as bisexual and now I just identify as queer um, because that's just what sort of feels right and more all encompassing for me. But, uh, you know, that didn't happen until after high school, even though I had these tiny moments of like, "Mm, I think I do want to make out with that woman. Um, But so I sort of feel similarly because I have a lot of friends who have known since they were very young that they were definitely a queer person. Um, and so, yeah, so we all just have, it finds us when it finds us. And yeah, but I do I do feel lucky that I got to have some of that in high school. Yeah, it definitely seems like a good time. And I mean, the 90s were awesome. So it was a great time to be involved in all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is the 90s your favorite decade or? Uh, I have to say yes. I mean, for sure. It's, um, yeah. And actually, I mean, I think I was technically I was actually like formally politicized, I would say, in the early 2000s. It was 2001 when 9-11 happened. um, And that's really was the moment. But the 90s, it was like everything in the 90s was like leading me up to that because of alternative like alternative culture. Um, And who did alternative culture better than the 90s? I mean, I just think it was it was the best. And yeah, so I felt I've. I felt so, I've always been nostalgic for the 90s since we were no longer in them. But writing this book, I just like the amount of 90s music that I listen to and like, just like movies that I've been drawn to watching again. Yeah, I do. I do love the 90s. Well, you actually had a playlist to accompany your book Mm -hmm. that you made. Can you tell Mm -hmm. a few songs that were on there if somebody's trying to gear up and get ready and decide if they want to listen to this? (laughs) What songs were you listening to and what are you listening to now? 
Yeah, so the it is it's a little bit of a the playlist might throw people off a little bit because it is chronological. So I sort of start with what I was listening to as a kid, which is what my mom was listening to. So it was like Queen and Phil Collins and John Denver and just sort of random sort of late 70s, 80s kind of kind of music. Um, and then it sort of shifts into when I was discovering uh, alternative music. So like Nirvana and the Cranberries and um, Hole and, you know, that sort of like 90s alternative rock scene. Um, and then it shifts from there into when I discovered punk and emo. So, you know, bands like Saves the Day and the Get Up Kids and um, some hardcore bands make it on there. Uh, so it's 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 not necessarily like a playlist of, of it's, it's not only 90s music because it does encompass part of my life of sort of before and after the 90s. But um, there's a lot of good 90s 90s music on there. Uh, yeah, so it's a fun playlist. It was fun. It was fun to make that Spotify playlist. And it's each chapter. Um, almost every chapter is the lyric from a song. And so I always really like when people are like, I know that song. So that's fun. <laughs> Um, and did you say, was that second part? What am I listening to now? Yes. <laughs> um, I, so I make playlists for every season. I'm, I'm a person who likes to make playlists for seasons. So my summer quarantine playlist is a lot of like, kind of like dreary, kind of like indie folk. Because <laughs> I think we're all at that part of quarantine. Well, at least I'm at the part of quarantine where I'm just like, this feels like it's not ending because it's not ending anytime soon and just feeling a little dreary and down about that. So, so um, I keep playing this song by Red House Painters on repeat called Cruiser. And that's been like the song of the song of the summer for me. And it's kind of a sad song, but it's your quarantine anthem as it were. Quarantine anthem. Exactly. <laughs> what about you? What are you listening to? I don't know. I find myself listening to a lot of like all over the place kind of stuff. Like I play guitar a little bit. So I was mm -hmm. like playing the Johnny Cash version of Hurt the other day. It was one of the things, well, you know, I'm definitely yes. in the same dreary. I think I think the whole country's in that dreary sort yeah. of like melancholy place right now. <laughs> so. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, but obviously music has been a big part of your life. It helped you find Absolutely. who you are. Um, Absolutely. So I guess I wanted to transition a little bit now into, I saw somebody kind of call or referred to your novel as a love story to the working class. Mm. <laughs> Would you, do, you, do you accept that? Uh... Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. I, um, I'm so glad to know that somebody phrased it like that. Uh, I, I think there's a, there's, there's certainly a danger in over-romanticizing any group of people, including the working class, um, because there's a lot of like shitty working class people in the world, like that is very real. And also it felt um, and continues to feel so deeply important to me as a white working class person to sort of uh, magnify these moments when working class people um, have these moments of solidarity and when these mo and, and when working class people uh, do things that like not I, I, I write a couple times in the book about not calling the police and sort of knowing that the police aren't weren't ever there to sort of keep me and my family safe um, sort of inherently knowing that as a poor person who witnessed my mom get arrested one night and knew that that was not going to make anything better um, sort of for our family dynamic at that time and sort of, you know, living through some of the the aspects of working class life that that are disproportionately uh, d difficult, like um, 
I don't want to essentialize this as being inherently working class, but, but, you know, we had a neighbor who was experienced domestic violence and it was like the police never stopped that. So there was no prevention. You know, I sort of witnessed all this up close. And so when I can sort of highlight these moments that poor white people and not even just poor black people, but, you know, poor people of color or people of color generally have these commonalities that feels so important to me. Um, if we want to build, you know, if we want, if we're ever going to attain revolution, we need more poor white people to realize they have things in common with oppressed people of color. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I have a couple moments where I kind of try to explicitly say that, but even if it's not explicit, like I, I really think like how I grew up is a testament to um, how oppressed people, what oppressed people have in common, which is that capitalism is harmful, the police don't keep us safe, and you know the two-party system hasn't helped us <laughs> much at all. Right. Um, so, so all that is to say, uh, beyond you know food not bombs and punk politicizing politicizing me, clearly my upbringing politicized me. And so absolutely, it's a love letter to to that foundation that gave me, um, that, that taught me solidarity, like deep, deep in my bones. I, I you know, I understood solidarity very, very um, intrinsically. Well, you're doing a really good job of setting me up for my next questions here. Because my next questions, <laughs> I wanted to delve a little more into politics and revolutionary, and specifically sort of the radicalizing of the working class and the white working poor, and mm -hmm. what sort of role do we do you think they might have in the revolution, and how do we radicalize them? Yeah. Um, well, I think we can't do it without them because there's too too many of them slash us. Um, and they also do, you know, if, if, if poor white folks get uh, sort of, I guess, radicalized in the wrong direction and become, you know, move into sort of white supremacist territory, um, it's a huge danger to, to, the, to the process of, of revolution and social change. So, um, so absolutely, I think that we, we, have to, we have to include poor white folks in our, in our, in our politics. And, and I also want to name the fact that there's a lot of poor white folks who are already involved in the organizing that we're sort of speaking of. I don't want to try to separate. That's something that's frustrating. It's like, there are poor people who are involved in organizing, you know, poor people of color and poor white people. Um, and that leads me kind of to my second thing, which is uh, later in my sort of activist life, um, I it became very clear to me that uh, labor unions and the labor movement was absolutely fundamental. Um, to, to, to revolution, <laughs> and the you know the, be, and be, I think I noticed that because I was in these sort of college age, primarily sort of um, lefty radical spaces, and we were doing some cool stuff, but we weren't necessarily working with and for and alongside people who were experiencing the most marginalization. Um, yeah, yeah, like the people I grew up with. Whereas the labor movement, um, that's exactly who, who they're working with. Um, so I got really involved with Unite Here when I was in college in Chicago. Um, there was a big, the longest running hotel strike ever in the country was the Congress Hotel. And, you know, it was primarily Latinx women house cleaners um, who were doing some of the most radical shit, you know, in the city. And I think that that's, uh, 
when you can sort of show um, poor white workers that, you know, their poor workers of color comrades are in the same struggle, um, that's incredibly powerful to, to sort of unify the working class that, you know, the enemy is the boss, not each other. I have such a love-hate relationship with unions sometimes yeah, that, you know, absolutely. I know, you know, like I love working class solidarity and nothing will change without working class solidarity. And then you just see them be co-opted by the Democratic Party. And absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah, that is not. Yes. That is not to say that sort of big unions are not problematic because they absolutely are. But I think we um, because of exactly what you're talking about. Uh, but I also think, I don't know. I still think it's necessary. Oh, it is absolutely the, necessary. The, the vehicle. The, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, but I hear you. Love hate is absolutely. It's funny because I feel like my answer is what I just said, but that's often because I'm on, I'm on, you know, I'm talking to people for whom they aren't already sympathetic to revolution, like working class mass struggle. <laughs> right. And so I'm like, oh yeah, I can be like a little bit more nuanced here in this conversation. <laughs> Um, and I guess another thing I'll say is like my mom actually has never worked in a job that has a traditional union presence. Like she's been in, um, I guess service industry is getting more and more unionized, but she's been in service industry. She's been in like random, she had a random cafeteria job, you know, she was a newspaper deliverer, free, you know, and that's all, um, free contract. I forget the name for it. Um, you can't unionize cause you're a sole contractor. I forget the term. Mm -hmm. So I've also witnessed how unions aren't only it because there's so many sectors that for, for whom that won't work, you know, whether it's the, you know, survival economy of sex work or whether it's like people in just service industry jobs that just aren't going to be unionized. Um, and so I say unions, but also obviously that can't only be it. Um, here in Minneapolis, where, where I live now, uh, we have a, a worker center called Setool that uh, tries to speak to to those exact populations, so people who may not have a union, but they gave they give workers tools to fight for justice in their workplace, um, even without a formal union. And it's it's a re it's really powerful. And mo most of their workers are uh, you know working poor brown and black folks who are um, and they've had a lot of really awesome victories. So yeah, definitely love hate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, I think is the more you get into activism, the more you do have a little more of that nuance of mm -hmm. yes, it's great, but uh, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's good and bad in so many things. Right. Um, well, we, I'm running up on time, so I wanted to give you a chance to put in any plugs you have, appearances you're going to be doing, where people can get your book. Yeah. Um, so things slowed down. You know, obviously, we're in quarantine, so my live tour was totally canceled. I've done a couple readings, um, most, mostly that's slowing down. Um, oh, and this, I just remembered this isn't coming out for a month, so I don't, I don't necessarily have any readings to plug. Um, but you can definitely find my, I, the best place to buy my book is at belt, beltpublishing.com. Um, that helps them the most, that helps me the most, so that would be great. Obviously, do not buy it on Amazon, please. Um, that, so that, that would be awesome. You can follow me on social media, I'm mostly on Instagram and Twitter. Um, you can just search my name. Uh, I have an extra E in Rachel, so just remember that to find me. My handle is Rebel Girl Rachel, but it's spelled funny, so just search my name. Um, and the last thing I'll plug, uh, just because I, it's it's always helpful. Um, I I'm involved in a lot of uh, prison abolition work. I'm part of Black and Pink, and uh, have been writing. I have a pen pal that I've been writing who's incarcerated for many years, 
And we co-created a zine called the Prison Arcana Tarot Zine. And if you buy uh, a digital version of the zine, um, all of the money goes to my friend uh, Christopher Young and the artist who's also incarcerated named James Diaz. And um, you can also find that on my website, rachelangeli.com. It'll take you to where you can purchase that. And um, so, yeah, that's another thing that I like to plug because it helps it helps my friends. So, Can you explain what Black and Pink is real quick, just in case yep. I have any listeners that don't know? Yeah, Black and Pink is a prison abolition organization that supports LGBTQ and HIV positive uh, incarcerated people uh, through primarily one of their biggest things is they do a letter writing. So they um, coordinate pen pal programs, which is how I got involved with my pen pal. Um, and they also do court support and put out a newsletter and uh, do research around how to support uh, LGBT queer incarcerated folks and formerly incarcerated folks. Great program. All right, I wanted to give you a chance for a last word here. Any like parting words you want to leave the audience with? You can encourage, you can discourage, you oh, can goodness. piss off. Um, oh my goodness. <laughs> wow. That's um, no pressure. Let's see. Uh, <laughs> um, I guess I'll say this. I think, um, you know, the left can rightly critique sort of navel gazing and identity politics. But I guess what I'll say is that self-reflection about who you are, which is what, you know, my whole book is kind of about and about your identity can really bring you back to what is ultimately like a materialist analysis of, you know, the conditions of society. Because I think if we look closely enough at ourselves, um, we'll find that we are nothing if not products of how capitalism and patriarchy and white supremacy and hetero cis hetero sexism have shaped us. Um, whether we're you know sort of benefiting from that or marginalized by that. So that self reflection work is important uh, for for the revolution too. <laughs> All right, thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. You as well. For my listeners, thank you so much for joining us here today. Hopefully you enjoyed this and you're running out to buy her book. I highly recommend that you do. The future is yours to create. Go out there and create it.